Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 235, The Case Against Preexistence. This episode of the Trinity's podcast is a presentation that I gave on May 4th, 2018, at the 27th Theological Conference, which was held near Atlanta, Georgia. It was sponsored by the Restoration Fellowship, and on the blog post for this episode, I've got a link for their YouTube channel where you can find a lot of material by people like Sir Anthony Buzzard. In this talk, I give some very general, broad reasons for thinking that, according to the New Testament authors, Jesus did not exist before his time in the womb of Mary. I fully recognize that this presentation will be obnoxious to some. It's traditional to emphasize the small handful of pre-existence and Christ-creator proof texts, and just to say, well, what about those? What about those? I have views about all of those. The talk does presuppose that a person is, in principle, open-minded about how to understand their meaning. I don't claim that this case is really clear. Both Trinitarian and Unitarian Christians, many of them, believe that Jesus existed for a while before he was a human. But what I do claim is that a proper consideration of context and of common sense should point you in the direction of the view Jesus began to exist roughly 2,000 years ago. As to all of the passages that people have in mind, I do say briefly here what I think about some of them. Others I plan to go into more at a future date, such as how to read the first chapter of the fourth gospel. I think you'll be able to follow most of my argument in this audio-only podcast. However, I do recommend the YouTube version, I've got more than 50 slides there with verses and numbered premises and colorful charts and everything. It will, I think, be easier to follow with those visual aids. If you want to find that, you can just search for The Case Against Preexistence at YouTube, or you can follow the link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. And again, this is episode 235. So without further ado, over to me. Good morning. My name's Dale. My talk is going to be called The Case Against Preexistence. Probably a better title would have been A Case Against Preexistence. This is my thinking on the topic. So I'm going to move kind of quickly. I apologize in advance for that. I have a lot of uh, material that I'd like to get through. I find that a lot of Christians haven't thought through this issue. They don't really want to hear a case against preexistence. They just hunker down in their favorite two or three proof texts for preexistence, and that's just about it. And what I want to do is not give a detailed exegesis of every passage that could have to do with this. I'm going to rush through a lot of material and give sort of a more high-level view rather than hunkering down in three or four passages and just dealing with that. So if you look in this little chart, the blue part is the part that all Christians agree on. We agree that Jesus was a real man that existed in history, and he existed in the first century, and he's still a real man now, and he still exists now. In fact, he's in a very exalted position right now. Okay, but a lot of Christian traditions think that that's just the end part of the story. Some say that he's eternal. He always has existed and always will. That's the red extent of life there. Some think that, well, he at least created. 
didn't Christ create, or wasn't he the one through whom God created? That's the kind of brown line there. Some think that he was active in Old Testament times. That's been a popular thesis, at least with some people, since the second century. And so these are really different theses. But anyway, talk about any of those ones to the left side of the blue. Call that pre-existence. That's my topic. If you're just looking at scriptures and reading on the surface, there's a big difference between these. I mean, everywhere and always, Jesus is portrayed as a real man. And he's explicitly said to be a man several times as well. Pre-existence, yeah, there are a significant number of passages that sound like he existed before he was human, or at least that's how they're commonly read. And this is why there's disagreement even between Unitarians about this, because there are these passages that kind of sound like pre-existence. The idea that Christ created a smaller number of passages, the idea that he's active in Old Testament times, a much smaller number of passages, the idea that Christ is eternal, if you're trying to find that directly in Scripture, as far as I can tell, it just ain't there. It's not there anywhere. People just deduce that from the deity of Christ. So they try to prove the deity of Christ, and they deduce that he must be eternal. So think about John 1.1. If you think the word in John 1.1 is supposed to be Jesus, it says, in the beginning was the word. Well, when is that? That's when the creation happened. That's not all times. And that's why the early Logos theorists thought that there was a time before Jesus existed. So this is what we're dealing with. Now, there's a broader pattern of dealing with what look like differences between scriptures. There's a pattern of thinking here that's exemplified when people are talking about the, quote, deity of Christ. If you look at, say, Paul and John, the way that Catholic interpreters read them, they think Paul and John teach the deity of Christ, but the synoptics just don't on the face of it. So what, is there a disagreement here between scripture? People that have a high view of scripture, you'd like to think that these authors kind of had their story straight and they basically agree in their teachings. And so there's three different moves. This is an inconsistent triad. The first says the New Testament writings concur in their central teachings about Jesus and God. Second, the Synoptic Gospels, Acts, don't teach a certain doctrine. Third, some of Paul's letters, John and Hebrews, do teach that. Okay, so you can't hold to all three of these. And what modern scholars, quote, liberal scholars do is they just say, well, there's been development. John's written later, and they, they came up with the deity of Christ later. Evangelicals try to argue that actually, no, Jesus is God in the Synoptics. Okay, that's another topic. Biblical Unitarians say, actually, if you look carefully at John and Paul and Hebrews, they don't teach the deity of Christ. So there's this pattern which people apply to other topics, including pre-existence. So look, on the face of it, the synoptics don't say anything about Jesus' pre-existence, but there are these passages in Paul and John Hebrews that people think have to do with pre-existence. So you got the same pattern. Some scholars just say, well, the New Testament writings just disagree. And then the evangelicals come along and say, actually, pre-existence is in the synoptics if you squint really hard. And biblical Unitarians say, actually, you can read John and Paul and Hebrews as not assuming pre-existence. And I think that's the right way to go. Now, the most obvious way that you could show that Jesus pre-exists in the Bible is to show that he's creator, right? He's got to be real. He's got to exist to, to pull off creation, okay? But this pattern doesn't work with creation, right? You cannot make a case that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Acts teach that Jesus created the world. They just flat don't. There's nothing that even sounds like it. This pattern breaks down for the evangelical strategy. What I'm going to do in the rest of this talk is 
sort of give a bunch of considerations that when you put them all together should convince you that the right way to go here is to deny three and to stick with one and two. So about Jesus being the creator, just quickly, when the New Testament explicitly brings up creation, it just attributes creation to the Father. That's a consistent theme. It's in at least five authors in the New Testament. Whenever Jesus talks about creation, he doesn't take credit for it. He attributes it to the Father. And not to mention the Old Testament, right? Yahweh alone, also known as the Father in the New Testament, he takes credit for doing all the creating by himself with no extra help. And so there is no doctrine of two creators, arguably, in the New Testament. And you don't see things that you see in later developments. You don't see the idea of uh, two creators. You don't see anybody softening people up for this idea that a man created the world. You don't see this claim that when God says, let us make man in our image, that he's talking to the pre-existent, pre-human Jesus. You see all these things in the second century, but you don't see them in the New Testament. And that's because the Logos theories came along in the second century and, and uh, eventually clawed their way to prominence. In my view, and I'm, again, I'm moving quickly here, every passage that has been interpreted as Jesus creating the world or the cosmos, either it's not really about Jesus, but it's about God's eternal word, or it is about Jesus, but it's not talking about the Genesis creation, it's talking about the new creation, or it's about Jesus and Genesis, but it's saying that it's all created for him, not really by him. And then in one case, there's even a textual corruption where it's been changed to say that Jesus created, but scholars think, no, that's not right. So the text that people appeal to to prove that Jesus created the cosmos or that God created the cosmos through Jesus, they kind of melt away when you look at them closely. They kind of don't hold up to scrutiny. What I'm going to talk about now are some different concepts that are in the New Testament that you can use to deflate texts that sound like preexistence at least the way they're translated and the way that people talk about them and so on. It's important if you're taking the New Testament seriously that you're not just making stuff up, that you're not just uh, coming up with an interpretation solely because it fits your theology. There needs to be something in the text and in the first century context that anchors the interpretation. You can't just adjust interpretation to fit theology. It's, it's not honest. One phenomenon I want to talk about is what I call the foreordination shift. Now, the thing is, it's a fact about reality that if something is happening now or it already has happened, it's too late to avoid it. So let me tell you about a very sad episode in my life. I lost my Transformers movie virginity. One of my young sons convinced me to watch Transformers 2, and I wasted two hours of my life. Watching imaginary robots punch each other. It was so boring. It made me sad to be alive for a while. Okay. Now, before I made this terrible decision, I could have avoided it. I could have walked out of the room. I could have read a book. I could have done anything worthwhile. I could have hit my head against the wall because that would have been more fun. But now that I have lost my Transformers movie virginity, it's gone, right? Not even God himself can undo that. He could make me forget it which I would appreciate. He could undo the mental damage it did to me or it lessened my love of movies. What we all think, we're programmed this way. We think of the future as a realm of, to us, largely unknown possibilities. The past and present, they just are what they are. There's no realm of possibilities there, whereas the future contains different things that might come about. 
And not only are there different possibilities for the future, we think, but we think in some cases, it's some, to some degree up to us which one should occur. This common sense thinking about time and the difference between past, present, and future explains a phenomenon that you see in the New Testament. And this is a pan-Jewish phenomenon. In ancient times, you see this in rabbinic writings a little bit later as well. So what they do is when they want to talk about something future as unavoidable because it's been predestined by God, it's an inviolable part of God's plan, what they do is they talk about future things as if they're already happening or as if they've already happened. So they push them left on the timeline. And so they talk about the future as present or the future as past. Now you look at this famous passage, Jesus praying in John chapter 17. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. Now he doesn't have the glory yet. He's asking for it. He doesn't really say that he already had it. He's using this idiom. He's talking about something that's predestined for the future as having always been, like in God's plan. And you actually know that Jesus is doing this backward shift in time because he's doing it later in the chapter. This is before his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, but he's talking about uh, that he's already empowered his disciples. And then he again refers to that he's that God loved him before the foundation of the world. So that's one phenomenon that you have to keep in mind. It's the same thing other people describe in terms of ideal preexistence. That's what's going on. Another phenomenon that I want to spend a little more time on is passages in which Jesus is said to have come from God or have been sent by God. Now, when you look on those passages, I mean, it sounds like he came from somewhere, so he must have existed somewhere else, and then say, hey, I'm going to take me a trip at God's sending, and I'm going to come to this other realm. It's not a foolish idea, because there are a lot of scriptures where this seems to be the right way to take it when it comes to angels. When angels show up and they say, I have come for this and that, or I've been sent for this or that, yeah, it sounds like they've come from another realm. Or when God sends his spirit, you can think of that as coming from God to, to the world that God created. Okay, but sometimes talk about coming from God or being sent by God. The from can just be somewhere in the world or some role within the world. And the to can just be some other place within the world. So there's travel, but it's intracosmic. It's within our cosmos. It could be that, but there's another interpretation. Think about when you are tagging a Christmas present, you know, from mom to dad or something. It's not really telling about the travel of the present. It's telling you the agent that the present is from. It's telling you at whose will this present has been brought about and, and given to you. So some of these sayings that I have come from God or I have been sent by God can just be, I say, merely agential. It just has to do with the sender. It's telling you who the sender is, basically. One thing that scholars have noticed about these I have come and, and I've been sent statements is they're pretty much interchangeable. There's a passage in Mark 1 uh, where Jesus says, for that is what I came to do. And when Luke gives his version of this passage, he changes, for that is what I came out to do, to, for I was sent for this purpose. So they're basically interchangeable. And scholars point out that to say that I have come, it puts a little more focus on the, the one that came, on his own action, whereas to say I was sent puts more focus on the sender. 
but really they kind of mean the same thing. They mean that they're there sent by God. Okay, but I want to interact just a little bit with this book that is now getting cited at least a lot by evangelical apologists and some evangelical scholars. Uh, It's by a very smart British scholar named Simon Gathercole, and it's called The Preexistent Son. And he is using all of his uh, intellectual powers here to try to show that actually Matthew, Mark, and Luke do presuppose the preexistence of Jesus, which is not what most scholars have thought about that. And a couple of the points that he makes is he says, well, look, at first glance, these coming from or sending statements, they assume preexistence and intercosmic travel. I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? Especially if, they, if he says he's come from heaven or he's come into the world and things like that. He also spends a long chapter arguing this, that the I have come to do something, right? Then you state your purpose. These statements that I have come to do this or that, he says they closely parallel statements by angels in Jewish literature of that time, not just in the Bible, in the Old Testament, but also in other literature. So an angel will show up and say, I have come to warn you about this or that. And Gather Cole argues, look, these statements by Jesus and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they sound just like those. And there's more to his case than this, but these are two of his central points. Now, if what I'm saying in this presentation is right, I think the first statement is false. It shouldn't be true at first glance that those sending and coming statements assume preexistence. I think a person is coming to it with a mistaken presupposition there, which I'll explain. And the second one, uh, maybe it's true. Maybe those are closely parallel. But what makes the big difference is that the one bunch of statements is by angels, and the other one's about a man, Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Just the change of subject matter from angels to men makes all the difference, I claim. So let me give you a little scenario. It's supposed to show you that you don't want to read too much into these coming and sending statements. So suppose you get engaged to a young lady. She's nice to look at, but then you find out that she's a rageaholic. She's addicted to rageahol. And uh, you're, oh my goodness, what have I done? What have I gotten myself into? But thank God in his mercy, he sends you an angel to warn you. This angel appears in front of you, poof, I'm the angel newbie, and I have come to warn you not to marry that woman. You say, wow, thanks for the warning. By the way, what is heaven like? And the angel says, I don't know, I was just created a few seconds ago right here, already knowing my mission. And you say, you liar, you said you have come. Okay. But this is my point. He doesn't have to be a liar. He didn't actually say that he traveled from one realm to another. When he says, I have come, he's just telling you God's purpose for his being there, right? And it's the same if he said that I was sent, right? I was sent to warn you. You're like, what's heaven like? I don't know. I just just existed just now. He didn't lie to you. So it's really easy to read too much into the coming and sending. A couple of times Gather Cole in his book says that these statements logically imply this kind of travel. They don't. And this sort of case helps you to see that. Neither sort necessarily applies or assumes intercosmic travel or prior intention on the part of the traveler. If you say, I have come to do this or that, you're not necessarily reporting like a decision that you made when you were in the other place. Again, the real point of saying, I have come to do this or that in these contexts is that God has sent you. God's the one that has the intention. Whether or not you existed and also had that intention in that other realm is another matter. 
you know, interpreting things, context is always what matters most, not parallels, not stuff you looked up in the lexicon. It's what makes sense of the passage overall, I think, that has to govern the interpretation. So when a human being tells you that he's on a mission from God, and if you answer back and say, oh, really, that's interesting. Uh, What's heaven like anyway? They're going to look at you like you're stupid, right? I didn't say I, I was in heaven and I came to earth. I just told you I'm on a mission from God. I was sent to, you know, revive the blues. So another thing that's going on in New Testament language is what I call metaphorical descent. And they just like to describe things that are blessings from God as coming down from heaven. So famously, James, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So I was talking to a couple of uh, young married folks last night that I met, and hopefully they've met the man and woman of their dreams, and they talk to other people, they say, she's heaven sent. Well, sure, but not literally, right? You don't think she floated down or came from another realm or something like that. It's just that God has blessed you with her. Right. We all understand this kind of language. It's not just in James. So Jesus is in an argument with some of his critics, and he asks them this question, did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? Now, I mean, it's just nonsense to think of the baptism of John as like traveling between realms, right? It's not that. It's There's two contrary things. Either John just came up with this, or God really did inspire this ministry of his. And Jesus, you know, they're, they're not willing to agree with that because John endorsed Jesus. When the Trinity's podcast returns, another biblical class of persons who are, in a sense, heaven-sent. Another thing that's going on, it's just standard language to talk about prophets as sent by God. You are not supposed to infer that they existed before their human life. So John, three times near the start of the fourth gospel, John the Baptist is said to be sent by God, sent from God. That doesn't mean that he existed, that he made a decision when he was in his pre-human state to come down and so on. We all know what it means. It means that God is behind him. God really did give him this purpose in life and really did empower him to do it. Now, let's go to John, which everybody thinks in John, Jesus is obviously said to pre-exist. And I'm not going to go through all the passages, but I just want to make this point that there are sending passages in John that seem like they're intracosmic, like just travel within this world or just agential. It's just telling you who is behind it all. It's really from God. So Jesus uh, says, uh, I came from God and now I am here. I did not come on my own, but he sent me. Right. So coming from God is what's contrasted with coming on his own. Right. So what he's really asserting is that he didn't just come up with this idea that he's Messiah. He really was given this role 
And that's his point. That's what it is to come from God. He's not denying that he originated in some reproductive process either, because it turns out that he did. Another example from John, he says he wants his uh, followers to believe that I came from you and believe that you have sent me. Nowhere in John does he clearly, uncontroversially teach, I mean the author of John, nowhere does he clearly teach that Jesus made this kind of intercosmic travel. This thing that has to be believed that's so important, that's part of the central point about John, I really think it's just that Jesus really is God's Messiah. He really did come from God in that sense. That is what is emphasized. That is what's repeated over and over in John. And really, in the thesis statement of the book, you know, these things are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Right. That's the big thing right there. The intercosmic travel, you got to be careful. Sometimes it's Jesus's spiritually blind opponents that come up with that, especially in chapter six. And that's a pitfall of reading John is to agree with the clowns that are just always missing the point, right? What, I have to go back inside my mother again to be born again, you know? Like, it's, it's almost supposed to be comedy. But anyway, I'm not going to go into that John 6 in great detail because I have a bunch of other points to make. This one looks like it's intracosmic. Jesus says, Can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because he said, I am God's Son? Now, my point is to focus on that sanctification, that making holy. That means being set apart, right? Now, set apart from what? I think from common life, from the ordinary pursuits. You know, he didn't pursue wife and family and career. Presumably, he had been doing some work, you know, so that he could eat. But he was, as it were, set apart from ordinary life and sent on this uh, unique mission. There's no real reason in John to think that this is some kind of conversation in eternity with the Trinity. All right, one of us has got to go down there who's going to be, well, I don't know, how about me? I was generated and not spirated, so it seems like I should go. You don't have to take it that way, right? But he was set apart. He was made holy and sent into the world. And again, you can take sending into the world to just basically mean being put on the world stage. And he is he's on the world stage. I mean, he's the most influential person in the history of the world, arguably. All right. It gets more serious than that. Remember that pre-existence is a doctrine of inference. It's not clearly taught. It's not focused on as such. There are these famous passages that people think imply it or presuppose it, but it is inferred. But let's talk about something that's not inferred. Jesus is explicitly taught in the New Testament to be the son of David, meaning a descendant of David, a literal descendant. Not just he's like David, but he really comes from that lineage. It's in all these passages in seven books, and there's other statements that imply the same thing, calling him the root of Jesse and so on, but I didn't even include those because I'm sticking to what's explicit. Now let's talk common sense here. The thing is that scripture will not give you common sense if you don't have it. And if you let common sense go, Scripture is not going to jump out and hit you on the head and force you to regain it. You have to bring the sense that God gave you and that God gave to everybody to Scripture. The authors presuppose that you know these things. So here's some common sense about ancestors and descendants when it comes to human beings. 
by the way, not everybody agrees with this. I think everybody should agree with it. But if you grow up in a Hindu culture and they tell you that everybody is reincarnated, you will not agree with any of the things I'm about to say. Okay, well, that's a problem with the culture. Sometimes cultures go against common sense. A culture can reinforce common sense and build upon it, you know, help us to use the minds that God gave us well, or a culture can sort of just start cutting out pieces of common sense and make life hard for us. Okay, so it's common sense that a human ancestor exists before his descendant. It's common sense that a human ancestor is a cause of the existence of his descendant. Your mom and dad, they got together. If you don't know how that works, talk to your mom or dad. And this is where you came from. They were each a cause, co-causes or part of the cause. But, you know, indirectly, your grandparents are part of the same causal chain. And so they are a cause, an indirect cause of your existence, grandma and grandpa, etc. A human descendant starts to exist after any ancestor starts to exist. So humans, when they reproduce, they have to exist for a while, and then they can reproduce. And so consequently, the ancestor has to start to exist before any descendant does. Again, not everybody agrees with these things, but they should. It's just part of our view of reality that God gave us, arguably. Okay, so apply them to the case of David and Jesus. David existed before Jesus. David is a cause of the existence of Jesus, indirectly, because he's many generations back. Jesus started to exist after David started to exist. Jesus is an effect of David. Now, there's somebody who's a much more direct ancestor of Jesus. That would be Mary. So then, by common sense, Mary existed before Jesus. Mary is a cause of the existence of Jesus. Jesus started to exist after Mary started to exist. And Jesus is an effect of Mary. And if you want to make it personal, let's just ask yourself the following questions. Did each of your parents exist before you began to exist? Is each of your parents a cause of your existence? Talking about your natural parents, obviously, your uh, biological parents. Did you begin to exist later than the beginnings of each of your parents? Is your existence an effect of your parents' actions? The questions kind of answer themselves, right? It's not anything special about you. It's not anything special about the case of Jesus. This is how we understand human lineage to work. And we rely on these assumptions of common sense when we do history, when we do archaeology. We're trying to piece together how ancient kingdoms worked, who, who was king after who, and, and things like this. Why should we suddenly forget this when we start to read the New Testament? I don't think we should. Now, Luke comes really close to explicitly telling you that Jesus began to exist, because he tells you that God miraculously caused Mary to conceive. Okay, so if Mary conceived, then she really is literally his mother. Okay, but if God was the cause of it, then he doesn't have a human father. But he is in the human lineage by way of Mary. And according to Luke, he's called son of God, in part because this is how he originated. So Luke and Matthew and many scholars have pointed this out, and uh, Sir Anthony Buzzard has written about this in many places. A lot of scholars point out that if you look at Matthew and Luke, 
what they say could only have been written by people that think that Jesus originated in this miraculous reproductive process. Because they just don't mention anything about any pre-human stage of his existence, and they surely would have if they had believed it. This is a subject of confusion sometimes with our Muslim friends. To say that God is Jesus' father does not mean that God made a baby with Mary in the normal way. Christians have never thought that, of course. He's not a literal father in that sense, but because he caused Mary to become pregnant, like a regular father, he is a cause of the offspring. And so it's especially appropriate then to think of Jesus as coming from him and from Mary. It doesn't say that God caused the existence of just the body, and it doesn't say that just the human nature resulted this way. It's just Jesus, like the man, the person, the male human being originated in this way. That's all you get. And Luke doesn't give any hint of pre-existence, of a pre-existing divine self that comes down and you know gets inserted somehow to be mysteriously combined with the result of Mary's miraculous pregnancy. It's just not there. Some ancient readers were so desperate to find some kind of descent there that they thought in the part where he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and then he says the same thing again in Hebrew style, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Some early readers in the second century want to say, ah, that's the Logos coming down. No, it's, it's just God miraculously acting by his Spirit. That's how any Jew in that time is going to read that. When the Trinity's podcast returns, it's story time. tell you a little story. Maybe I'll uh, involve our hosts, Sir Anthony and Lady Barbara Buzzard. They get a knock on their door, their lovely Georgia home. And there's this uh, Caucasian, nice looking man there. And he says, Hey, nice to meet you. I'm your long lost son. Sir Anthony's like, what? No, I don't have a long lost son. I behaved. I didn't sow my wild oats. It's not going to come back to haunt me. This can't be but he looks like a buzzard. He talks like a buzzard. If you stand him up next to Sarah, it looks like he could be Sarah's brother. Right? What, what's going on? So they have a genetic test. They find out he's got the right kind of DNA that a buzzard would have, that, that a child of Sir Anthony and Lady Barbara would have. This guy has that DNA. What is going on? What happened? I mean, is this guy a real member of the family or not? And then later, after some more investigation, they find out that he was assembled on the planet Alpha Centauri by aliens. They were uh, zooming around their spaceship one night in Georgia, and they flew over the buzzard's house, and they took a little scan of their genetic material. And they, they know how genetics work, so they, they, they assembled this creature on Alpha Centauri and flew him down here. They're, they're going to prank the buzzards, okay? They're, they've been pranked by aliens. Now, my... 
I'm being silly, but I'm making a serious point. Would this be a member of the buzzard family? Would he be a natural buzzard? Would he, would he be in that lineage? Obviously not. The similarities are not enough. That he looks the right way doesn't make him a member of that family. That he, Even that he has the right genetics doesn't make him a member of that family. He has the wrong sort of origin. He was not produced by a buzzard. If you're produced by one person in that lineage, you are now part of that lineage. But it, it goes beyond that, okay? Not only is this imposter not a real buzzard, he is not a human. He's not part of the human family. Now, we might decide to treat him like a human. Maybe he's a nice guy. We could sort of adopt him, as it were, but he's not part of the lineage. He's not related to us like we are all related to each other, all natural humans. Okay, it's going to get weirder. You believe in demon possession, I assume? This is a fun medieval illustration of Jesus uh, casting a bunch of demons out of that guy, and they go into the pigs, and the pigs jump off a cliff. Let's just change the story around a little bit. Say, Jesus says, all right, all of you demons get out and you can go in those pigs, except the guy I'm talking to, you can stay in this guy. You can have that body. I give it to you. Now, if you're a dualist, if you believe in souls, the demon kicks the soul out and the soul flies away. And now the demon's in charge of the body. If you don't believe in souls, never mind. The demon somehow just destroys the person or God does it for him. The person is destroyed, but the body's still there. And now the demon is animating the body. He's walking around in the body. He's talking in the body. Did this demon just become a human being? No. Not a member of the human family, is he? He would just be a demon puppeting a body. He wouldn't be anybody's son or daughter. Now, what this tells you is piloting a human body is not enough to make somebody a human. Right? You have to have the right sort of origin. Is this common sense? Does anybody think that that demon would then be a man with all the rights thereof? Don't call him a demon. He's a man. No, he's, he's like a pseudo-man, if that were to happen. It's going to get weirder. So this lady is looking at a gorilla at the zoo. She's feeling sorry for him. I mean, he's such a magnificent creature, and he looks like he's bored and unhappy. And she says... I would do anything if I could just improve your life. I'd even switch places with you, but I would, I would just wish I could do something to help you, Mr. Gorilla. You're such a noble creature. And God says, oh, yeah? And so he takes the gorilla's soul, and he switches it into her body, and he deactivates her soul. So the gorilla's soul is put into a hypostatic union with her complete human nature, and that sort of deactivates her soul so that her soul and body do not any longer compose a person, a human person. And now you got the gorilla walking around, pretty surprised that he's a lady now. Okay, but he's not a lady. He's not a lady. It would be a gorilla in a human body. In some sense, he would have all the normal components. Again, if you believe in souls, he would have the body and the soul. It would be him that's the one self there, in a sense, or the one conscious being there. Okay, my point is that would not make him a human being. That would make him something that could be mistaken for a human being. It's a weird kind of Frankenstein 
composed out of the components that normally would make up a human being, but it's not a human being, right? It's not the son or daughter of anyone. It's not, as uh, C.S. Lewis says, a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. It's just a gorilla in disguise. It looks like you should think that no one is a genuine human unless he is a first human or he exists because of at least one prior human. The human race is a lineage. It's like a big family and we're connected like branches in a tree. We are all related here. You could be one of the ones that got it started, but otherwise, if you're really in that lineage, you're on that structure somewhere and then you exist because of previous humans. Whether you like my little fictional scenarios or not, it seems like just having the components that normally compose a human are not enough to make you a genuine human. It's enough to maybe make you something that people would confuse with a human. It might make you look like a human and so on. Okay, so the theorized eternal divine logos or logos, an eternal divine self, would not be a genuine human. This is the sort of thing that is supposed to exist whether or not any human ever existed. According to any Christian theology, God does not have to create. Okay, well then the logos that they're theorizing would have existed whether or not there were any humans. In eternity, he's not a first human, nor does he exist because of at least one prior human. And so, look, just making it into a mysterious combination with a body and soul, with what the tradition calls a complete human nature, is not enough to make the Logos a real man. It's enough to make it look like a man, have some things in common with a man, like having the same parts. This is just at the at-first glance, you know, amount of passages that support these various positions. If I'm right about this, and if this really is part of our God-given common sense about human beings, then it looks like the man part should trump the other parts. Because it's just a non-negotiable New Testament teaching that Jesus is a man. And if that really requires that he came into existence as a part of the human lineage, then, okay, well, we need to stick with that, and we need to see if we can read these apparent pre-existence and Christ-creator texts in a different fashion. right? And then we're back to this, which is what all Christians have always agreed on. We can just get rid of those other uh, theories. Quickly, I want to go through some objections and replies. Some of my fellow Christian philosophers, I think, would say, incarnation, therefore, being a genuine human can't require a first human or being a descendant of at least one human. Right, but we're asking, is there any New Testament support, really, for incarnation theory? And this can be doubted, to put it gently. There are only a small handful of passages, really two, you could throw in a couple more, that people even think concern this alleged transition from being a pre-existent divine person to then being also a human. The main ones are John 1 and Philippians 2. But all of these have been given plausible, non-arbitrary, first-century contextual readings which don't involve any such transition. So that should really make us think, are we inferring too much? Are we inferring so much that we're going to leave behind common sense? Some would object, uh, aren't you assuming materialism about human persons? Only if materialism is true is it obvious that our parents cause us to exist and that our ancestors all existed before our first moment of existence. No, I'm not assuming that, actually. 
if you want to believe in souls, if you want to be a dualist, I think you should still agree with those common sense claims. You should think that somehow in the reproductive process, there come to be souls. You shouldn't think that they're like always around or something because that's against common sense. In fact, there are Christian philosophers now who hold exactly this position. They call it emergent dualism. And again, it's the view that souls just get produced somehow within natural reproduction. How about this objection? If it's so obvious that a real man must be a first human or derive his existence from at least one prior human, why then did early Christians so easily accept Logos theories on which God's pre-creation divine word became flesh, in other words, became a human being? Like, why does that come into the tradition so early? And why did they so easily accept that? Well, the first thing, and I don't have time to go into this, but there was nothing easy about it. The Logos theories were widely opposed by Christians between about 150 and about 250. And in fact, you find people rejecting Logos theory even more towards the year 400. They were recognized as an alien kind of innovation by a broad swath of Christians who were not enamored of the Platonic philosophy. So there wasn't anything easy. At first, Logos theories were held by the elites, people like Tertullian and Origen, and then only slowly did it kind of get beat into the masses. Now, if you ask me why did the elites go for it, the Hellenized lovers of Greek culture and philosophy, it's because Platonism taught that all human souls preexisted. And uh, it's kind of embarrassing. You know, Origen, the famous Christian teacher, holds this as well. He doesn't believe everything that Plato said. He's not totally uncritical, but he agrees with this. He was accused of believing in reincarnation. I don't know if he did, but anyway, he believed in this. And so all the common sense we talked about went out the window with him and, well, with a lot of other people as well. And that opens the door to Logos theories. There are probably other reasons why non-elites were uh, prone to agree with pre-existence, maybe confusing real versus ideal pre-existence, or just sort of taking New Testament language too metaphysically, or you could say too literally. They were outside of the Jewish context. They were Gentiles fairly early on, and, and uh, they may not have understood that sort of Jewish idiom talking about ideal pre-existence, that is moving things back in time. In conclusion, two questions for you in all seriousness. What were you doing 150 years ago? What were you doing? Nothing. All right. You were not a cause of anything, and nothing was affecting you because you weren't real. You didn't exist yet. Don't we all know this is how it works with humans? Until we're convinced by some prestigious tradition to speculate otherwise. How about this? What are your great, 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 great grandchildren doing right now? Same answer. Nothing. They're not, they're not waiting in heaven to come down or they don't exist. They can't be doing anything. They haven't been brought into existence yet. So if you answered nothing to both of those questions, I would like to give you this gold star for having common sense. And my point in this talk is I think we should assume that the writers of the New Testament also have common sense. All of them, even John, even the writer of Hebrews, even Paul. And this is a sensible reason to ask, can we take what might sound like pre-existence texts and actually understand them in some way that a Jewish reader might have heard? 
And I think we can, but I haven't done all the hard work of going through all those passages. Okay, thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, questions from the audience and my answers. So it seems like the point of your uh, presentation is that the logical problems of believing in pre-existence are, are too significant to allow it to be you know, plausible. You know, you're, you're basically setting someone up to interpret the scriptures more along those lines because of the logical issues of, of thinking of Jesus as within the biological chain if he did not originate within the biological chain. I'm sure you know there's a long history of different opinions on reason versus revelation and also criticisms of Sasanianism as being too rationalistic. And I was just wondering what what your thoughts would be with the whole idea of scriptural evidence, even if we don't understand it, would that necessarily trump? Or do you just deny that it's ever possible that revelation and logic would contradict I don't deny that it's possible in principle, because I don't see how you could do that, but revelation obviously comes from God. Okay, but our built-in cognitive equipment and our judgment that we naturally have also comes from God. And so you don't want to see God as contradicting himself. A famous case of this that Protestants used to talk about all the time was, but it's now out of fashion, is... uh, the uh, transubstantiation idea, right? So when the priest blesses this little wafer, now it's the whole body of a man. Look, I'm looking at it. It's not the whole body of a man. So that would place divine revelation against the evidence of the senses. Yeah, but God gave you these. He gave you your sense of touch. He gave you your eyes. He gave you your mind. And you're pretty sure that's not a body. It's just a wafer. And you're pretty sure this is still wine and not blood. And so that would pit God against God. And so you should expect that God is not going to throw us into these irresolvable difficulties just to torture us and keep us humble. I mean, it's possible, right? Uh, God wants to stretch us and cause us to trust in him and so on. But you're still dealing with a loving father trying to communicate both through nature and through revelation. There's other things I could say about it, but I think I might just start rambling. So I probably should leave it there. We can talk more about it. Bill? Uh, yes, thank you, Dale, for that. And uh, some people read in the uh, scriptures that uh, Jesus was the uh, Son of God. And then some people read in that he's the Son of Man, and that makes him a God-man. But I, I, it's what I've heard from other people is that it takes God and a man. So whenever I was reading uh, Luke, the, the first and second chapter of Luke, I tried to put it in a phrase that I could understand. And it was that God created in the womb of Mary a son of David. 
So can God do that? He, he did do that. This is an interesting topic, and I noticed that Luke says more than Matthew about the miraculous conception of Jesus, and it could be for the following reason. If God just created a, a, what looks like a human embryo in a woman right now, just it pops into existence, that wouldn't be a human being because it wouldn't be part of the human lineage. It would be just like the Alpha Centauri phony buzzard guy. It'd be hard for us to discover this. Okay, so what Luke says is that what's been conceived in you by God's power, this is going to be the child that will be called the Son of God. And so by saying that she has conceived, then I take it she has played her part in the reproductive process. And so it really is literally her offspring. If you think the miraculous conception is that God poofs into existence a zygote or an embryo, I think that wouldn't be a man, even if it looked the right way and so on. I run into a lot of Trinitarians and actually Unitarians who have dealt with pre-existence a lot. And so I appreciate any exposure to uh, pre-existent thought and discussion. Now, during your talk, the assumption was that you have to have at least one human parent to become a human, which I would say if I was just with my life experience would say is a 100% accurate assumption. But in light of scripture, Adam did not have any human origin, and yet he was considered mm -hmm. a human. So yeah. it would seem like a sacrifice in the Old Testament, like a goat. You can't literally trade for human. And what makes it acceptable is that God says so. And so I think God could say that this guy from Alpha Centauri, uh, Anthony's long-lost son, is a human, and it would be so, because God said it, and therefore it is. I'm not saying you're right or wrong, but is your assumption you think accurate with what we see with Adam, or like with the Nephilim who had one human mother, but a non-human father, but yeah. yet they were not human? Right. So... I think part of what we mean by calling someone a real human is that they are part of this lineage. Now, there's nothing impossible about starting a lineage going, and so an omnipotent being can easily pull this off. And he doesn't have to start it with one, he could start it with two or he could start it with 75. But once the lineage gets going, then the only way to be in it is to be part of that cause and effect network. Now, God could right now just you could say create a man, okay? Somebody that's indistinguishable in their powers from me or you. And uh, you can call that create another man, okay? But he wouldn't be part of our lineage. Maybe he's going to start another human race or something. This guy's name is Adam. Is This guy's name is Shlomo, and there's going to be the race of Shlomo now, right? So, there's, so nothing I said said it's impossible to start a, the human lineage going, it's just that part of what it is to be human, if you're not a first human, part of what it is to be human is to be part of that cause and effect network. So it's more of a distinction of, in Jesus's case, of his origin rather than his nature, right? So more of like not his substance or his. If nature is defined, that. if nature is defined solely in terms of one's present properties, yes. Okay. So I mean, here, here's an analogy. Say that you have this painting and it looks just like a, uh, a Picasso. It doesn't matter how similar to a real Picasso it is. It either was produced by him or it wasn't. And if it's not produced by him, it's just not a Picasso painting. And the thing is, you can't tell that just by looking. 
right? So there could be an imposter among us now who's not really human. Maybe it's an angel in disguise, or maybe it's Shlomo who's going to start a new race on Mars. There'd be no way just by looking to tell. Does that make sense? I literally, I woke up this morning, I'm presenting tomorrow on will the real Jesus stand up? And I was thinking, you know, this is like Frankenstein. We've created a monster. You know, and I'm looking, I'm looking at the seven first ecumenical councils and the trinities, uh, Arianism, you know, Apollinarianism, and all the, this is a monster created by trying to make Jesus something other than human being. And it just doesn't work. So I appreciated the Frankenstein and the, the, the buzzard from yeah. whatever yeah. Coincidentally, I used that phrase Frankenstein. I wasn't planning on that, but I don't mean to be a disrespectful snot in saying that about Catholic tradition. I know they're trying to make sense of scripture the best they can, but I would just point this out that Catholic Orthodoxy, small c Catholic Orthodoxy, like you see in mainstream Protestants as well, they are constantly being pulled in the direction of docetism. Always, constantly. I was, when I was an evangelical who was just confused about all these matters, half of the time I thought Jesus was a real guy because that's what you're supposed to say. But then half of the time I just thought it was God in disguise, sort of like pretending not to be omniscient and omnipotent and so on. And that's really a bad teaching about Jesus that's strongly contrary to the whole New Testament. It's the incarnation theory that ex- and the logos theory before it that explains why there is this constant gravitational pull towards docetism. No one's really gotten fully away from it, I don't think. Um, no group that I know of. That's a problem. Dale, of course, that was just making my heart leap. That's a metaphor. I come at this as a Good. language person, very little to help us in geography, help us in history, and some languages. There's a crime scene here. That which is conceived in her, Matthew one twenty, the Greek doesn't say that. That is, the one that's fathered in her. We're quite sure this Begotten. is the Son of God, the Father. Yeah. So I think, let me ask you a question then. How much does this matter? You talked about docetism. John says, you better be careful you get the right Jesus. You're in great trouble. You're an antichrist. Would you comment on the text about coming into the flesh instead of coming in the flesh, as the text says? John warns. What do we do with that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think being in the flesh or coming in the flesh is just an idiom for being a real human. It was put against early Docetists, because when you see this amazing, astounding man with uh, amazing godly wisdom and God-given divine powers, it's really tempting for people to imagine that it's not a real man, it's a pseudo-man, right? And mythology is full of these characters, Greek gods that assume human form, avatars in Hinduism. It's very easy for people to imagine that this is just a deity in disguise. And so they dealt with that early. Why is it important? I don't know. This is a big subject. I mean, he's, he's our leader and representative. He's a founder of the new race. It just seems fitting and appropriate that someone doing the office, the job of Messiah should be a real man. They really insist on it. You know, they're aware that you might be tempted to think he's just a God faking it, but Partly it's important because he's our model. He's the author and finisher of our faith, but he's also the pioneer of our faith. We got to go where he went. We got to walk in his footsteps. 
and um, you're not an omnipotent and omniscient being. And to say that you should imitate one is just not very helpful, right? Do what a being like that would do. That's not going to help me. But to do what a man does who trusts in God, that's what you have in the New Testament. I guess maybe that's one of the biggest reasons why it's important. Uh, those who strongly hold to this pre-existence doctrine will uh, most oftentimes go to Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Mm-hmm. Could you comment on, that, on those verses? Yeah, I'm just firmly convinced that the whole context of Colossians 1 has to do with new creation. It's talking about Jesus and his exalted state being in charge, and he's reordered the heavenly powers and so on. And notice it doesn't say that he created the heavens and the earth. It says he created the things in the heavens and the earth. Paul often uses things to mean humans or other intelligent beings. So I just think you really have to take it as new creation. And new creation is not a theory that we bring to the text. It is a known theme in Paul that occurs in, I don't know, at least five or six places. That's an excellent question. If you're going to pick the most plausible Christ creator text, that's probably what you would pick is Colossians 1. But I think it does submit to this kind of reading. So thank you. What would you say to um, people that say that Mary couldn't have been Jesus' biological mother because she was an imperfect human, and therefore she, her DNA couldn't have mixed with the perfect sacrifice that Jesus was? I guess I would like to know how they know so much about sin transmission you know, like, uh, I mean, he only has to be as perfect as a Messiah has to be, right? And that, wh- whatever you call that level of perfection, why is that not consistent with having a normal mother? I have no idea. There are people that think they know about these things, and they believe in, you know, the transmission of original guilt and things like this, but I'm hesitant to speculate so aggressively when the texts just don't go there. There isn't anything in the New Testament that gives you a hint that Mary has to be like miraculously pure, that she has to be, you know, immaculately conceived and all that stuff. It's just, why, why would that be required? Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Dale. We'll have a five-minute break. This week's thinking music has been the track Global Warming by Kai Engel. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God.
with all your mind.